Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, my name is Tracy Morgan, your host for New Books in Psychoanalysis. And today uh, we're welcoming Dr. Erwin Hirsch to our show to interview him about his book, Coasting in the Counter-Transference, Conflicts of Self-Interest Between Analyst and Patient, published um, in 2008 by the Analytic Press. Dr. Hirsch lives and works in New York City. He teaches uh, and supervises at five psychoanalytic training programs, including uh, at William Allenson White, the Manhattan Institute for Psychoanalysis, and the NYU postdoc program. He serves on four editorial boards and has published over 70 psychoanalytic articles and reviews, uh, as well as presents um, nationally and internationally at conferences. For this book, he received the Goethe Award in 2010. Coasting in the Counter-Transference is a book that asks analysts uh, some hard questions about the ways in which our characters uh, may impede an analysis. It's a book that looks at money and the analytic frame. It's a book that investigates preferred ways of relating that an analyst may have and how that can throw an analysis off track. Um, It's a book that has a chapter on baldness, so uh, it, it does a lot, and um, we're very happy to have Dr. Hirsch with us. So without further ado, we'd like to welcome Dr. Erwin Hirsch to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Hi, welcome, Dr. Hirsch. Hi. Hi. Hello. So welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. You're um, the second person that we're interviewing, and um, I guess before we begin, I just want to say that I, I have a one-person uh, psych- uh, psychoanalytic background, and you have a two-person. So I'm looking forward to learning a lot from you about how you work, and I think um, our listening audience is going to be ver- is varied from one- and two-person perspectives. And uh, I wanted to begin by asking you um, about uh, a concept that you develop in your book, um, Coasting and the Countertransference. Conflicts of self-interest between analyst and patient. Um, what do you mean when you say coasting in the countertransference? Well, under, fundamentally, countertransference can always be used productively. Uh, I have noticed in myself over the years, and in all the people I've taught and supervised, that very often we don't use our countertransference productively uh, for many, many reasons. Uh, most of those reasons cluster around co- uh, maintaining a comfortable equilibrium for both parties in, in the dyad. And, and the emphasis is on comfortable equilibrium because it's not just comfortable for the patient, it's comfortable for us, the analysts. Uh, and it could be comfortable for many, many reasons. Uh, for instance, Freud said transference is the hardest psychoanalysis and the hardest part of psychoanalysis, and it is the hardest part of psychoanalysis because patients talk about us, and they talk about us in ways that are often very uncomfortable for us. So if we collude 
to uh, sort of help the patient not talk about us or not tell us things that are uncomfortable uh, to us, not make observations that will be uncomfortable for us, not notice things about us that we don't, we we would rather maintain uh, not being noticed. Uh, we can create relationships where seemingly productive material is talked about, but very very important material is is avoided. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, coasting of the countertransference re- refers to maintaining a relationship that is comfortable. And comfortable for us as well as patients, uh, and uh, avoiding dealing with crucial matters. I see. I see. So, in a in a two person model, the thought that comes to my mind is that the analyst is thinking the patient is talking about something that's really real and really about me, and it, and it can be taken much more personally. Is is that sort of uh, is that the risk? Uh, for instance, when the patient says, "You know, you're you're cold or you're withholding," and you maybe really have aspects of yourself that are cold and withholding. It's, mm-hmm. uh, is is that is that the kind of thing you're talking about that can be challenging? Yes. Any anything that casts us in a light that we do not want to be cast. Any any perception about us or the way we work or the who we are as people. Uh, anything that will make us more uncomfortable than we prefer to be made at any given moment mm-hmm. uh, can easily be avoided. Sure, there's a lot of uh, motivation to move away from that because it, it can be very uncomfortable. Uh, I was see, wondering... see, we just, just you mentioned the two-person model. Let, let, let me let me add something that may be important at this juncture. Yeah. In, in the old days. Uh, Almost any, when the analyst was conceived of as a, a blank screen, more or less, and, and, and the, the analyst was conceivably thought to be able to truly be a blank screen, that is to not let his or her subjectivity enter the picture, you know, that is if we were really well analyzed enough, we could stay out of the mix, we could really control the person of who we are completely and aided by you know, being behind the patient on the couch, et cetera. So in in that era, what most anything that patients said about us could easily be written off as projections. You know, they have nothing to do with us. You're really talking about your mother, your father. Uh, those are the usual suspects. Uh, uh, so if we are unfeeling or cold or disinterested uh, uh, or our decorations of our office were ugly or in poor taste uh-huh. uh, or we were ugly uh, <laughs> or unappealing uh, Bad it, clothing. Really, yeah. it really it really wasn't it really wasn't us it really wasn't us uh-huh. it, it was mommy or daddy or sibling usually mommy or daddy uh-huh. uh, right. and uh, in, in an era of, of, of uh, two-person psychology where, where our subjectivity and our personhood cannot be taken out of the equation, uh, comments in his way have to be taken more personally. That is, it, it doesn't preclude the patient's 
being very influenced by their mommies or their daddies, but it, 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 it also doesn't preclude their seeing things about us that are quite on target, uh, albeit they may be sensitive, let's say, to coldness because they had a cold daddy. So they're sensitive to my coldness. But it doesn't mean that I'm not being cold with them uh, or I'm not cold in general. And so if we have to take patients' comments about us as saying perhaps something about us, it's much more threatening, it's much more uncomfortable than being able to write it off as a, as a projection. Uh, it's, so it's, the whole field has changed in that regard and, and uh, transference has become more comfortable, uncomfortable uh, to address. Yes, I, I, I absolutely felt, because um, my training is in one person, when a patient talks to me about some aspect of myself, which may be true, I also have um, some insulation. And I was thinking about in the two-person model uh, that the analyst has to have a different form of insulation to be able to weather those storms, um, because we all have pockets where we're not analyzed, many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, even, um, even if they are analyzed, it doesn't mean that true. we've changed. I mean, that's right. It's our character. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we are flawed human beings, no matter how good our analysis is, <laughs> and no matter right. how many years we do it. That's for. right. That's right. Absolutely. Um, I was wondering, you know, did you have a chance to read this past week or was it the week before? Uh, do you read New York Magazine? There was a really interesting... No, no, no. I don't read New York Magazine. Oh, well, you know what? There was, there was just a, a very interesting piece written by a man who'd been to four different analysts from four different traditions here in New York, and every analyst had fallen asleep on him. And... Funny, I'm surprised I didn't hear about it. Yeah, that. yeah, it's, it's quite... It's, colleagues or patients, no, it, I didn't hear about it's that. It's quite, a, quite a, an interesting piece in which... Um, uh, the patient goes from analyst to analyst. He goes back and visits his analyst mm-hmm. and, uh, and asks, you know, what happened? And, um, and I was thinking in, in, uh, in your book, you have a very, it's very touching where you talk about, you know, uh, wanting to, and I think Donnell Stern also mentions this, wanting to find out what went wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in certain yeah. analyses. Um, yeah. so, so I was wondering, what, what, what would you say motivated um, for you the writing of this book? Because I think it's a very unique, a unique text in the field. What, what motivated you to write it? Well, uh, selfish things, <laughs> primarily. I, I, uh, you know, I, I, most, I mean, I've written a lot, and, and uh, you know, I think people who write a lot, you know, one motive may be to, to uh, add to the field, to, to uh, be, be uh, useful. Uh, uh, however, you know, most people who write, write for selfish reasons. It's, uh, you know, to be noticed, to be seen, to, to uh, you know, to be as a, a public uh, figure as possible. It's a, it's, a, it's a form of ambition and, and, uh, wanting to be recognized it's it's i i think more a a narcissistic thing than than uh altruistic thing mm-hmm. uh and uh so you know i pushed myself to write you know since uh i don't know over 30 years since my kids were starting to get a little bit older and not need my full attention and 
And so the, the book is uh, something I, I hadn't done. I've published many, many, many articles, but I, I was, I've known so many people who've written books and, and nobody bought the books and they, they went out of print immediately. And it's so much trouble to write a book and it takes so long and it's so much of a, a pressured effort, at least for me or for, for most people. And so I avoided doing that and uh, until I was convinced by by certain colleagues that uh, uh, how, no matter how many articles I've written, a, a book would really enhance my presence in the public domain uh, more than the sum total of all these articles I've written. Hence, uh, hence you have this interview. <laughs> This interview, yes. indeed. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Precisely. Precisely. Uh-huh. I don't know if you would have called me to interview me based, know, on, my, based on my 70-plus articles. You probably right. would not have. This is not uh, new articles in psychoanalysis. You're right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, and, and uh, that's what motivated me to write, to write the book. And, and, of course, also, I, I had to, to write with some... Some, some idea that was at least new or no idea is really unique, but, you, you know, you, you, unique enough. So, uh, you know, this theme has been evolving uh, in my writing. That, that is the, 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 the significance of the second party, the analyst in, in the dyad. You know, uh, it, it's been evolving and sort of it, it, it evolved to this, two of the chapters uh, in the book are, are from articles I've previously written, and, and six are are, are new. Oh. Uh, is that a reason? Does that answer? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Self no, interest no, is what motivated me to write this book. Well, well, this this prompts me to ask the next question. Um, when I read the book, um, the word selfish, I didn't count how many times you used it because I, I'm not very obsessive, but it was really there a lot. Mm-hmm. The word selfish and. It did jump out, and I wanted um, to ask you more about um, what it is that you mean when you're referring to the analysts uh, being selfish. Um, I can you say more about that, or do, do you feel you've already described that? I mean, what? The, well, the, it's a, it's an self, interesting self, term. Selfish and, and, and self-interest. I, I think I used I used into changeably, although selfish has a bit of a stronger connotation yeah. than self-interest. I, I think there's a lot of things we do as as analysts that are uh, for us uh, more more equal to or more than for the patient. Uh, you know, this, this is a, uh, a 50-minute interview based on the tradition of a 50-minute hour. Well, my hour is 45 minutes, and you know, there are so many people who do 50 minute hours, but uh, uh, probably more people these days do 45 minute hours, uh, and and uh, that's selfish, you know, cutting the hour from 50 to 45. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I write about uh, seeing patients back to back, you know, you know, in, in clusters of three or four or or more. Uh, there, there's absolutely no benefit. It's just detriment to patients. You know, for us not to take a break, uh, and then that's how the 50. And that's what I, I write. That's how the 50-minute hour was designed: 50 minutes, 10-minute break. Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, the, those, those, those are, these are simple everyday examples, but uh, that's, that's what I mean yeah. by selfish, uh, you know. Well, you're, you're in a way talking about the, uh, how the market, so to speak, impacts the profession, um, you know, how the, uh, the economics, um, how economics impact uh, how we work and how we go about our work um, mm-hmm. and not taking breaks to reflect on the patient. Uh, you know, if we did that, well, we would see, you know, three fewer patients a day possibly. And, yeah. Yeah. and that, that impacts our are making a living, um, which you really take up in this book. Uh, you have two chapters oh. on money, um, yes. which um, are re- I thought were very thought provoking. So I wanted to ask you, how uh, does the need to make a living get in, in the analyst way of being an analyst? Oh my goodness! <laughs> I have to ask. You, you beg the question. It gets in the analyst way more than more than any other yeah. single issue. There, there's a, you know, there, there's a. A very good article that just came out in <clears throat> Contemporary Psychoanalysis uh, by some, someone named Christopher Bandini, who's a graduate of Manhattan Institute for Psychoanalysis, talking, and he, he, you know, he's, he's an MSW, and MSWs often don't write that much in psychoanalytic journals. He's talking about what it was like to enter this profession, go through analytic training, and how damn hard it was to earn a living during and after, uh, and uh, all the compromises he felt he had to make in, in, in order to, to do that. Uh, but yes, there, there are so many compromises. We talk about selfish. You know, it, it, as, as psychoanalysts, we all prefer to see patients at least three times a week, you know, depending what school you come from. It's three times a week or it's four times a week or sometimes five times a week if more classical Freudian. Uh, but a tiny, tiny percentage of uh, patients nationally—I don't know about internationally, but nationally—can are either willing to, or certainly can afford to do that at, at anywhere as near what our normal fee is. Uh, the unselfish thing to do would, if somebody can afford, uh, you know, two hundred dollars uh, a week for for therapy, is to uh, you know, see them three times a week for, you know, $65 a session or $70 a session. If we really, you know, wanted to do our best work and do what we believe is best, that is multiple times per week. But it's rare that we'll do that. It's certainly rare that I will do that. I, I, I talk about I slash we. Uh, I mean, that's one very, very glaring example. We'll most likely see that person once a week at, uh, at $200. Uh, there are some schools where people are uh, encouraged to come every other week uh, because then, you know, you could charge $400. Uh, but that's that's a whole, that's an extreme. It goes, that's a whole right. other story. Right. Uh, but we, we, I think, keep people in treatment, as I, I write about, way too long these days. And that if we had uh, a waiting list of patients, uh, patients would get through this process much more quickly. There's a, a vested interest to keep people in, in treatment. There's a uh, longer than than would than is ideal. Uh, people are in treatment now if they're willing to stay. That is both people in the field and people outside the field for 
legions of of, of years, uh, and this was not the case in the 60s and 70s that I hear about when psychoanalysis was much more popular and, and there was a, the, the laws of supply and demand were, were more in our favor than they are now. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, Freud, Freud did not conduct uh, very long analyses, right, seeing people no, six days no, a week. He, that's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, he didn't. I mean, that, that was unusual in a different, a different regard, but some, somewhere in between what he did and what we do would probably be uh, uh, more, more optimal for the patient population. Right, right, right. Uh, you also you write uh, in uh, one of the chapters on money. Um, how can you try to help patients when an ul- when an ultimate positive outcome is a loss of income, that yeah. uh, that our patients get well and they do leave us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and that that's always a, a sort of a, a shocking moment. You know, eventually they're better and they have to go, and our attachments mm-hmm. to them are are um, you know are. are our attachments to them, um, and they some of those attachments, uh, of course, are also financial. Um, yeah, they're personal attachments and they're financial attachments, and mm-hmm. I, I think we don't encourage patients, uh, by and large, to uh, leave as, uh, as as efficiently as as they would if uh, if economics were not not an issue. Yeah, that that's right. Um, I was thinking about uh, if you hadn't. Well, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how uh, the need to make a living um, at the profession might um, keep the analyst away from. And I think this is really at the heart of your book: keep the analyst away from uh, addressing difficult topics, topics the patient uh, would rather um, not contend with, um, issues in in character, et cetera, that uh, that we shy away from. Can you say anything about that? Yeah, I, I think uh, sometimes we uh, are frightened of patients leaving if they are get too angry at us, uh, or if they are, are cognizant of their anger or their disappointments. Uh, if we uh, push them to address, uh, you know, some, un, some unsavory characteristics or characteristics that they would prefer to uh, remain, have split off, uh, more split off. Uh, I, I think uh, we sometimes uh, or, or all too often get involved in uh, sort of comfortable interchanges where, uh, you know, the, the patient is uh, sort of empathized with and uh, 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 seen more as the uh, victim of a uh, uh, cruel, cruel world, cruel mommies and daddies, cruel significant others, uh, and we're on their side. And uh, if to to not be on their side, to be more challenging, uh, uh, can make us frightened that. The patients will not want to do this, will get angry, will leave. Uh, so there's any number of themes that we might uh, avoid, you know, anywhere from patients' observations about us, you know, through dreams or through discussing other people, you know, transference observations that we don't address because we don't want patients to be fully aware of their criticisms of us or, or their perceptions of our shortcomings, 
as well as uh, qualities within the patient that the patient is uncomfortable dealing with that might lead them to, to flee, to bolt, to... Uh, so, yes, I, I, I think that uh, that is another factor that economics has a lot, uh, has a lot to do with. Yeah, cer- certainly. Um, I, I found it very interesting in the book you have a, a chapter on um, sort of theory and uh, what is it? Uh, let me just get the... Yeah, I thought that that was really maybe that was well, I don't know if it was my favorite, but I really was engaged by that chapter. And you you um, suggest that it's uh, counter that a theory can be uh, yet another form. And I'm quoting you here, pervasive personal countertransference. Um, and I began to wonder about, you know, the different schools of psychoanalytic um, thought and training do attract different personalities. I mean, I'm, I'm in training at the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies, and, you know, I think about who's drawn to that way of working and, and what kind of people, um, you know, tend to go there. And I, I began to wonder, who is, so, so who is the sort of the person who's drawn to the two-person model? Who's the relational or interpersonal analyst? Who are the people who are drawn to those schools as opposed to the um, more... Well, the modern model is not actually strictly classical, but uh, but let's say that you know the more classical Freudian. Um, do you have anything to say about that? Because it seems that you're you're looking at the match between personality, yeah, you know, yeah. and and training. That, well, that 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 really, I, I I don't have anything to say about that aspect of of your question because I I, I don't I, I don't really I, I can't really typify in, uh-huh. in, in that way. That, that, that is, I think the theory, the theory that we embrace, you know, and based in part on the institute we attend, the supervisors we pick, and probably more important than anything, the analysts that we have, uh, has an enormous impact on uh, our conceptualizations. That, that is, the way we conceptualize patients and understand patients uh, is, is uh, sort of inextricably related to the theory that we have embraced, that we've grown up with and that we've embraced. But I can't really, I cannot really say that uh, one sort of person is attracted to one kind of theory and another sort of person is attracted another kind of theory. I, I mean, I write about it as a function of two things, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, one, uh, uh, identification with our analyst. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's an artifact of, uh, I think it's to some degree an artifact of who we wind up with. Certainly for, for me it was. I mean, if, if I, I mean, I, was an analysis for someone from the White Institute. I identified with the interpersonal tradition. I was basically happy with my analyst, and 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 so when I went for analytic training, you know, I could supervise us from that point of view, and uh, that became my my psychoanalytic identification. I, I write that if I had been referred to a, a classical Freudian analyst, and he or she. Uh, if it worked well, uh, it probably would have been some of what of a liberal classical Freudian analyst. I, I, I'm totally convinced I would have identified with the Freudian perspective mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, uh, gone in, in that direction myself. 
Uh, the other factor is, is the aesthetic. Uh, and, and I don't know that that's a personality issue. Th that is, there are certain things that I read and, and that even way back when I started training that I would read that I just would not resonate with. It would put me to sleep, you know, and I, I feel so embarrassed confessing this, but my, my wife and I always have a joke because she, her, her psychoanalytic sentiments are close to my own, that if we had trouble sleeping and we pick up some Freud, <laughs> sure, we would have no trouble going to sleep. And I could say if we picked up some Klein or if we picked yeah. up some Lacan. Uh, and that's been the case way back, you know, in, in my in my 20s. It, uh -huh. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get into it. It put me, when I read the interpersonal literature, it resonated more with me. Uh-huh. Uh, and I don't know that that's a personality thing because, you know, some people like science fiction, other people like mysteries, other right. people like, uh, you know, Shakespeare, other people like uh, postmodern uh, fiction. Uh, right. And I, I don't know that you could typify uh -huh. personality. You know, some people like rock and roll, some people like classical music. I, I don't know that you can typify, uh, you know, what type of person like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so it, it's really... It's really an, an aesthetic as, as much as anything else. And that's kind of a long-winded answer, but uh, yeah. anyway, that's my answer. Yeah, no, no, that, I, appreciate, I appreciate your talking about that because um, it, it, just, it just came to my mind. I was thinking about, you know, people who, um, I would say people who are at a, a modern institute tend to be really interested in, um, you know, working uh, uh, sort of um, constructively with aggression. And there are people who may have conflicts with aggression and then through many years of an analysis, usually a modern analysis, work through their conflicts with aggression so that it can be like, you know, put to, to good use and, um, mm -hmm. and be more fun. <laughs> than yeah. than destructive and I you know and, and I was thinking about friends of mine who are, have trained at different institutes or drawn to different schools and I think a lot about what what um you know where we overlap in in our our mm -hmm. conflicts and and where we um where we don't um you know so that that was a an interesting aspect um of your yeah. work yeah I see I, I I see that less as an artifact of personality than mm -hmm. than an artifact of the analysts we wind up with, and, and I say wind up with because it's often not necessarily based on personality. It's based on referral and who referred you, and right. and and, uh, and if you and so you know if you're in analysis with someone from a modern institute who deals a lot with aggression, and your analysis is effective and you're pleased with it, you can you're likely to identify with that analyst, and that is going to be become your way of working and. And, and become your your school, if you, if you will. Yes. Uh, year, years later, that might change. And and and, and uh, you know, I know many people for whom uh, that that has happened. That that is, uh, there are plenty. There are a number of interpersonal people interpersonally trained, or I know that have become very interested in climbing, climbing beyond. Right. Uh, 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 you know, years after their analysis and. Uh, yeah, well, we, we, we age and we find ourselves drawn to, you know, to, to different schools of thought, absolutely. Um, I wanted to tell you uh, something. As I, as I read the book, I had um, a, a thought, which was, gee, I really want him to write another book. And the other book I wanted you to write, because I feel it's, uh, it's sort of embedded in this text, 
is a book about the straight male analyst and the straight male patient. I thought you, t- you have a lot to say about working, uh, being a man, working with men. Uh, I found it very, uh, you know, moving, um, and, uh, and, and I, I thought you have a lot of depth. And uh, I'm wondering, uh, would you consider uh, <laughs> heading, in, heading in that direction? Because you really do give a lot of incredible case examples about the straight male analyst, straight male patient duo that um, I hadn't, I really hadn't encountered um, uh, a lot of writing on the topic. Um, could you say anything about that? Well, Do you have any thoughts? Well, thank you. First, sure. thank you for your compliment. Uh, I mean, I had written a few articles uh, on that subject. You know, one article called Men's Preference for Men, which, which sounds like it has to do with sexuality and, and homosexuality, but it really had to do with... Uh, uh, heterosexual men often being much more comfortable with other men. Like uh, your patient Alan, who you write about, who I think wanted to, he he was wondering if men, uh, if a straight man could marry a straight man, that it would be kind of a mm-hmm. like, a good yeah. marriage of yeah. sorts. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and and you know that, that I've often found uh, in in working with with men, particularly with men. Particularly men who share a number of interests, in, you know, certain interests, including sports, which is a big interest of mine. I, I hear you like baseball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, and 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 be and more. You know, <laughs> You're a Mets fan, I hear. And, yes. and, and, and football and basketball and uh-huh. uh, and and you know the, the relationships we get into with patients in, in, in long treatments. I mean, there are so many people. I have seen who I wish I could be friends with, you know, that, that I, I wish that when the treatment stops, the relationship wouldn't stop, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, certainly uh, that's true in relation to some women. And, and so, of course, there are plenty of relationships with women who I wish if it were not for the, the, the boundary of the relationship could have been sexual. Sure. Uh, uh, but, with many men, the relationship sort of took the shape in, in many respects of, of friendships I've had, you know, friendships I've had since childhood, and I have some friends who I've been friends with since childhood, or friendships I have that I've made later in life. Uh, and uh, the relationship takes on that form of, of a friendship, and... Uh, uh, there's a sense of comfort and uh, familiarity and shared interests uh, that we, uh, you know, to a very, very strong closeness, a closeness minus, at least minus any conscious sexual, sexuality. Uh, uh, and so I've written about that, that phenomenon. Uh, uh, the, the sort of comfort of, of finding people who share a lot of similarities. Uh, uh, and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't challenge a friend, right? <laughs> you wouldn't bring up something to a friend about their personality that you noticed was uh, was sort of uh, potentially problematic, right? So you can mm-hmm. have a patient who you're just you feel such enjoyment with, and yet you can blind yourself, is that what you're saying, to sort of aspects of 
of uh, their character that might that they came into analysis to work on, right? Right. Yeah. That 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 would be the coasting part. You know, the 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 good news would be uh, some sense of 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 comfort uh, and 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 the freedom that comfort brings. Yet on the other hand, uh, one can sort of be friends, you know, and and uh, stay in that comfort and not make the the relationship analytic enough or challenging enough. It, it would be analogous to seeing a woman who I, I find attractive and uh, the relationship could stay sort of boy-girl flirtation because it's so enjoyable and and n- not deal with some of the other uh, you either not make that sufficiently public in the analysis or not deal with some of the more unsavory characteristics because of enjoying the flirtation or the mutual attraction mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. uh, right. Right. You, yeah no I, I, I you see I, the analogy I mean, oh absolutely abs- absolutely I'm thinking of uh, you know female patients that I work with who um, like clothing or cooking or you know <laughs> Right. <laughs> and it's just it's there is there is something uh, it's very appealing. But I often wonder, okay, is the patient, um, uh, you know, hoping to? Is this? I would I would wonder. Is this an induced feeling? Am I being lulled away um, from? Um, and does the patient want me to stay away um, from what might be more? Uh, more troubling, and I, I. So, so let me ask this. Let me ask the question. Let me ask the question in this way. I was wondering, how is the idea of coasting in the countertransference different from um, what some might consider, and I think I might consider the more traditional idea of the countertransference resistance, where the analyst objects to having certain feelings that are um, induced or produced by the patient or or by uh, the the treatment dyad. Um, well, is there a difference between coasting and a countertransference resistance? Well, with, with coasting, the, 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 there's the implication that there is at least some consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ah. resistance is more the implication that the experience is, is, is not conscious uh, and that, that we, we don't know, you know, that, that you know, if, if I'm... You know this this uh, person revisiting his four analysts who fell asleep. Yeah. Uh, th- those th- it's inconceivable that those analysts did not know they were bored uh, or disinterested. Uh, uh, but yet they didn't sufficiently address their boredom and disinterest and <laughs> before they went to sleep. Right. <laughs> there was a, there was a consciousness. Yes. And and in these patients with whom. I feel very friendly, and uh, uh, I, I enjoy, you know, talking about some this sport or that sport or last night's game that I know they watched and I watched, you know. Uh, and uh, I, I, that, that isn't unconscious. I know there's an awareness that I'm doing this, and, uh, and not that it's all bad, Right. Do. I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe it is, uh, but to stay there, uh, or to stay too much there, or to stay too much in boredom and drowsiness, uh, it, there is an element, or too, too much into flirtatiousness or uh, titillation, 
or, or being idealized, another nice, nice feeling for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there is a certain consciousness. So uh, the, the term resistance usually implies more of an, a, a lack of consciousness. I see. So, I see. Yeah. So it's like you've come out of you've, you've had your supervision session on the patient. You know, and yet it's uh, we we don't we don't take the the more um, uh, unnerving step. I think you you gave a great example of a a woman you supervised who um, was uh, I believe very sort of uh, sympathetic and maternal and believed this is what the the patient needed and this was this was also in her character um, in the analyst character this is what the way she was comfortable being and the patient uh, didn't do too well and she mm-hmm. knew and she couldn't uh, or wouldn't uh, however you want to put it um, bring up the issues that would bring her into discomfort um, into an uncomfortable place yeah sure I, I I understand that. Um, so, so here's the question: how, how do you think the analysts need? Uh, we talk about the analysts need to make a living, um, and I was wondering about the analysts need to be loved, and how does that impact the analysis? Because I think, uh, in part, pushing away our patients' disappointment or anger or uh, upset with us is is more about our need to be comfortable, but also a need to feel that we're we're lovable, possibly. Do you, do you have thoughts about that? But the analysts need to be loved. Well, loved or 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 admired, uh, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I, I think I did see different different theories would would uh, dictate what you know what it is that's lovable. That I mean that that is if if being just use a certain extreme being uh, being th- 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 there's a theory that that emphasizes empathy uh, now of course we if we have no empathy we can't even do this work obviously right. em- empathy is, is is very important but it's, there's a theory that places empathy in even a, a more central role or or that empathy is pretty much all we should be doing, uh, and one can, for instance, adopt that theory. And and you know, it's a theory that has a lot of logic and a lot of consistency. And one can certainly argue for the, for the value of of employing it. But the motive for uh, embracing that theory could be more than the sense that that theory makes. It could it could be that. Uh, it's it's the more likely road to be loved and admired mm-hmm. by the patient. But however, you take the opposite. You know, you mentioned the, the theory of dealing with with aggression. You know, uh, on the surface, that looks uh, sort of more more intrepid. You know, the, the analyst who um, actively goes after aggression and and all those uh, you know other uh, the more darker side of mm-hmm. of, of, of patients. Uh, uh, we one if we embrace that, we could just as well feel that the road to being loved is to unmask the patient's aggression. That, that is, the patient will love us more. Uh, 
not necessarily being empathic, but right. in uncovering their aggression, which will then free them and liberate them and leave them to feel like they've really, uh, you know, really in treatment with a with a brave and intrepid and, you know, somebody comfortable with ag- aggression. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we we all want to be loved and admired, but it, it, be, being that way, we do different things to to get that. That, that is what we, what we believe is therapeutic gold is different. We differ in what we believe is therapeutic gold: empathy versus aggression, for instance. Right, right. right. Uh, and and we we can't take out of the equation the wish to be admired. With whatever. Either way. Yeah, either way. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I, I'm not. I don't think I've, I, I was clear enough in what I was saying. No, but. I think I think it's very clear. I mean, yeah. I I hadn't I had not conceived of it that way, but um, I I do uh, I, I do think you've you've uh, clarified that, right? The wish, whatever you want to be admired for, <laughs> the capacity mm-hmm. to, you know, to to tolerate and to um, you know work with aggression, for instance, that might be your you know what what makes you feel that you're you're good and you're great and you're loved or right. or, or whatever. Right. Sure. Yeah, I mean, just to just take I mean, just take two other almost stereotypes, but but extreme. Let's say, let's say the the analyst who is much more interactive uh, says a lot more, perhaps. Is more open about revealing personal things. Uh, is 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 warmer. I mean, you could see where that could be motivated by theory, but it could also be motivated by uh, you know the wish to be loved, to be a to be a nice guy or a warm person, or mm-hmm. uh, not one of those cold, depriving analysts. Right. But let's take a, a a depriving analyst. You know the the, the prototype of the traditional Freudian analyst. Well, that analyst could be striving to be admired because they are so good at being depriving. That is, they are so good at self-control. That they are so good at not intruding their person. That they're so good at trying to be objective. That they're so good at trying uh, to maintain a, a a difficult and, and pristine uh, relationship that they don't in, they, they, at, at being non-indulgent. Mm, so, mm-hmm. so, so, so I, I think whatever we do, we can't we can't uh, rule out that it's partly motivated by the wish to be loved or, or admired. I was thinking, especially the analyst with a with a big personality who um, works uh, and is 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 very quiet and um, and containing and listening. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of quiet in the room. Um, that, <laughs> that person um, needs uh, to feel uh, to feel appreciated for how much they hold back. For instance, yes, and, yeah, yeah, ab- mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely. Right, and their supervisors or their peers or their colleagues will appreciate. You know how this gregarious person is able to be, you know, sacrifice his or her gregariousness for the greater good. Uh, That's right. Of the patient, and isn't that a wonderful characteristic? Right, know? right, right. How, and like, how do they do it? You know, it's like like weightlifting or something. How do they bench press all that? You know, how do they how do they manage their character and still uh, be uh, 
be um, be as quiet as as uh, you get the sense maybe that they're being. Um, you know, we haven't talked about, and we're going to be um, uh, out of time soon. Um, but I wanted to to make sure to touch on this. You you have a chapter in this book on baldness mm-hmm. and on being bald, and I and working with with uh, patients who are bald, and I. When I came upon it in the book, I said, "What? What is this doing here? You know, this is what is this? This is so interesting. It sort of jumped out at me." And um, I wanted to ask you, what made you decide to include um, a chapter um, in the book on on this topic? Well, when when I was considering it, I, I, I I'm sort of technologically deficient, but I asked someone, you know, some technological person to search, you know, do a thorough search of the literature from forever. Yes. And, and there's no literature. Right. There is no, there is no literature. I looked on the PEP also. I was really interested. I was like, wow. <laughs> no literature on, on the subject. Yeah. And as a man who is now bald and, you know, was gradually balding from slowly from the 30s onward, I know the impact that had on me. It was a very big uh, part. Uh, I, I was quite quite troubled by it, and and, uh, uh, and I have had many patients. Not everybody. I mean, everybody's different, but so many men uh, are are troubled by it, uh, and and uh, there's no literature on it, and and uh, so. And 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 the subject is very often avoided uh, in 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 the, in the analytic process. That that is the degree that it can be it can be troublesome for so many men. Mm-hmm. So and, and I've avoided it myself because of my own shared discomfort mm-hmm. with with it my, within myself and uh, sort of empathizing with. How delicate an issue it could be, right? right. Uh, for, for you know, for so many men. Uh, so that's really an, that's an example of coasting because you have an awareness. Of, yes, it's an awareness. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's it's glaring. Yeah. It's right there. We're not talking mm-hmm. about it. I know we're not talking about it. I don't want to bring it up. The patient doesn't want to bring it up. Mm-hmm. Should it be brought up? Um, how to do it? Yeah, that, I mm-hmm. that's a good example. So then the chapter does serve as as it is exam it it is exemplary or it does does uh, look at a model and a way of working and does elucidate your your thinking um, on coasting. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was a very um, sort of courageous, and and uh, and I, you know, I really appreciated that that you'd written it. I mean, I, you know, I'm a woman, and a female analyst, I, but I do have bald um, uh, patients who are balding, and I, my patients lie down, and I'm seeing the backs of their heads, and I, you know, mm-hmm. have no. Uh, and they may be feel very humiliated or uncomfortable having a woman looking at their weakness <laughs> too well. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So is there anything else that, is there anything that we have about a minute or so left? Is there anything that you wanted to say that we haven't gotten to? I'm sure maybe plenty of things, but. Um. Uh, well, the only, the only, well, first, my appreciation to be asked to do this interview. I, you know, I, it's uh, my great fear in writing this book is that, uh, you know, that it would go out of print very quickly and no one would read it. My efforts would be wasted and, but. The book has done 
reasonably well, and this interview is a, an example of it. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I I wrote it to be recognized, and this is an example of being recognized. <laughs> and I'm very grateful for you to to for this for this recognition. Uh, I, I think, but the the only other thing is, I I, I think it's uh, we didn't talk much about the sort of the character or the personality of, of the analyst and, and the kinds of uh, relationships that we as people are, are comfortable yep. getting into. And, and that can never be discounted, you know, that some of us are more comfortable in relationships where we are very nurturing and we create dependency and others of us are more comfortable in relationships where there's elements of flirtation and playfulness and other of us are more comfortable in relationships that are sort of testy and challenging and confronting and, and aggressive and, and, uh, and in, independent of the patient, uh, what we are more comfortable with does have an impact. Uh, and, and it's a, and it's an under, under, uh, examined element in, in, in our field. That is what we bring, to our relationships with our patients, sure. uh, uh, and that and that would be my one person background, not knowing exactly um, how to how to work with with uh, <laughs> with those ideas yet. I think mm -hmm. um, so. That would be reflective of, of in part what what you're talking about. Uh, you know, because it's it's still a, it's an I, those are ideas that I'm I'm uh, familiarizing myself with, but I'm not familiar with them on a lived level in my own analysis and my supervision and my training. So, uh, so there we have, I think an example of what you're talking about. Um, so, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't take that up because it's not something that, um, you know, is that, that feels comfortable to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's an area of, it's an area of the interviewer's discomfort. So. Okay. Excellent, excellent example, right? Yes, that, no, absolutely, absolutely. We're we're uh, we're, we're demonstrating the, the medium. The medium is the message. That's right. That's right. So um, you have um, succeeded. I have a countertransference resistance, and it's now fifty-one minutes. It's almost fifty-two minutes um, into okay. the fifty-minute hour. But um, we're going to sign off. I want to thank um, Dr. Erwin Hirsch for um, for being with with us in, in New Books and Psychoanalysis, um, discussing his book, Coasting and the Countertransference. Um, I, I've enjoyed uh, speaking with you. I've learned a lot. And um, write another book. I'll interview you again. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank All you. right. <laughs>